Good morning, my name is Mark. If you would please stand with us as we read Nehemiah 10. All of Nehemiah 10. <laughs> Nehemiah 10, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hekeliah, Zedekiah, Sarai, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Aramiah, Malkijah, Hattush, Chebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Merimoth, Abudiah, Daniel, Ginathan, Baruch, Meshulam, Abiha, Mahiman, Maziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benue of the sons of Henadad, Kadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalita, Paliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Horei, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Parosh, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bilbai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bazai, Harif, Anatoth, Nabai, Magpaish, Meshulam, Hazur, Meshizabal, Zadok, Jadua, Palatiah, Hanan, Anaya, Hosea, Ananiah, Asub, Haloshesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabana, Masiah, Ahaya, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Benai. And the rest of the people, <laughs> the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of the God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all of the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all of the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's house, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord and also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, 
as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes of our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Yeah, great job, Mark. Uh, hey, if you're interested in reading full pages out of the Hebrew phone book <laughs> as well, we would love to have you get on the, the reader list if you feel like you can handle such things as did Mark very, very well this morning. So let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you that uh, this chapter... Um, those full of names of people we don't know, they are real people. And they give an example for us and lessons, Lord, for us to learn. And Lord, we're, we're just uh, excited to be looking in on this, this sort of revival that was happening in your people in that day. So speak to us, Lord, about our own personal revival, about revival in our church, in our city, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Nehemiah 10, we have God's people. Um, they're really in the midst of, of a, a powerful work of God. And as you know by now, the wall is built, the gates are hung, the worship team is assembled, the priests are appointed, the security team is in place. The preacher, Ezra, this is about a week and a half from chapter 10 ago, Ezra, they build a platform for him, and he climbs up there, opens up the scroll of the Torah, and begins to read it, and he begins to preach a six-hour sermon. And uh, we can, you know, have a little grace for Ezra going along. He probably hadn't preached in a while, and that was probably the biggest crowd he's ever seen. So, you know, when I'm out of the pulpit and I come back, I tend to go long. And you're going, well, you tend to go long, period. So, yeah, whatever. <laughs> So the preaching of the word, it brought conviction and it brought sorrow. And Nehemiah, you remember chapter 8, they said, stop it. Stop your tears. It's not time for that. This is a holy day. It's a happy day unto the Lord. And so go and celebrate with your families and eat meat and drink wine and provide for those who maybe can't afford the meat and make sure everybody is able to celebrate. Uh, God for his goodness and his, his, uh, his grace. So then they had read in the word, you remember, that there was this feast of booths or feast of tabernacles. And they thought, oh, that's in the Bible. Shouldn't we be doing that? And, and it's that festival where everybody in Israel, they come to Jerusalem and they build these huts, these, these sort of tent huts. They make them out of sticks and that kind of thing. And families all camp together, everybody in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, and, and they commemorate the exodus and the giving of the law. 
And so they read it in the Word, and they said, let's do it. It's in there. Let's do it. So they did. And every day for a week, there was laughter and joy. Moms and dads and kids everywhere in and around Jerusalem. Every day there was Bible study. And uh, it was like, you know, VBS plus a, you know, adult Bible conference all in one. And then the eighth day which we were in last chapter, was a solemn day, and that's when they confessed their sins, properly so, and the sins of their forefathers. And they prayed an incredible corporate prayer, and we unpacked that for the last couple of weeks, and it was a a prayer that just, you know, exalted the Lord and his character and his faithfulness and his power and his majesty. So after that prayer, they wrote out a commitment, an oath that they made to the Lord. So there's all this spiritual movement that's happening and they felt like, man, we've gotta, we've gotta take action on this. And what we have before us this morning is the contents of that oath, that commitment that they made to the Lord. And so I'm gonna bring out maybe four things uh, this morning from this oath, from this commitment, uh, as, as it relates to revival and renewal in our own lives and in our own church. So, number one, revival brings alignment with God. Revival brings alignment with God. So I'm going to jump back to the last verse of Nehemiah 9, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So because of all this, because of, you know, everything that God has done, because of what he's doing, because of his greatness, man, we we need to take action on this. I need to respond to this. And then he goes on in chapter 10, verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and statutes. So God has been working so powerfully in the midst of his people in the last probably 10 days or so that the leaders of the people, the most prominent men, they crafted this document of commitment to the Lord and to his word. It was an oath. And so, you know, I was thinking about this. The New Testament It doesn't speak a whole lot to oaths. There are a few spots where they are recognized, but it's not like made out to be a big deal. But I think in modern evangelicalism, you know, maybe a modern equivalent is a rededication of one's life or a recommitment to the Lord. And that's language that's, it's not in the Bible, but it's, it's implicit. For instance, I beseech you, Romans 12:1. I beseech you, therefore, uh, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable unto Him, that you may know what is the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. 
So present yourself. Paul's writing that to Christians. So at this, wherever you are at in your walk with God, like I'm encouraging you, go ahead and make this step. Take this action. Present yourself to God. So that's, you know, putting your body on the altar. That's, that's Old Testament language, right? The, the Old Testament priest would slay the bull or the goat and then uh, throw it up on the altar, uh, which is, you know, giving it to God, basically. Throwing it up on the altar, the fire was burning, it would be consumed by God. The Bible says, Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. So that's the idea. You kill the animal, put it up on the altar, the fire consumes it. That's God consuming the animal. So we're told then to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So we're to offer God all that we are, our heart, our mind, our strengths, our time, our talent, our treasure. Lord, it's all yours. I'm putting my body, everything that I am is yours. Now the problem the issue with being a living sacrifice is that once we've crawled up onto the altar, we can crawl off again. We can leave our first love. We can be lured off of the altar by sin. We can, you know, have the cares of the world quench our fire for God. So what do we do? We present our lives again to the Lord, crawl back up on that altar because it's right, it's the right thing to do. Surrender to God, that's another way of thinking about it. surrender. You know, Lord, I surrender, I, I, I give up right to my own life. Lord, this house, Lord, you have right to go in and rearrange the furniture however you like. So, this is renewal. This is in a personal sense, that's revival. The heart of true revival will always be realignment with the Lord and with his word. So what happens when your, the tires on your car are out of alignment? You're probably going to start to feel a, a shake and a shimmy at some, maybe you get up to 60 miles an hour and all of a sudden, like, whoa, what's going on here? It's not going smoothly as it should. And so too, when we're out of alignment with the Lord, instead of his peace guarding our hearts and minds continually, fear and anxiety have access to us continually. Rather than casting our cares on Jesus, we're carrying weight around that we're not meant to carry. Listen, when your life is aligned with the Lord, when you come to church, you'll come to church not as a consumer. You'll come as a consumee. Every Sunday will be a crawling back onto the altar and saying, God, consume my life. All I am is yours. So God's people in Nehemiah's day, they realized that their lives were out of alignment with the Lord and his word, so they recommitted their life. They made an oath to the Lord. So, hey, maybe you're ready today. Maybe this is resonating with you right now, and you're going, man, I feel like I've drifted. Listen, today, you can get back on that altar. Well, number two, this alignment, now, it, it comes from within, and we need, to, we need to just hammer this a little bit and unpack this. So just about all religions 
um, call people to some sort of higher standard of morality and conduct and that kind of thing. And, and uh, just about all religions call people to change their ways in one way or another. It's usually written in their holy book or holy writings or whatever. And so the goal then of the people will be to live by their religion's rules and standard the best they can. And so they will use their own determination, their own strength of will to follow those external teachings. So the gospel is different in that it's not God asking people to conform to external external rules. The Christian life begins with a change of nature. So Romans 6.10 says concerning Jesus, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So this is how we're, we should think of ourselves, dead to sin and alive to God. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus came down into the slave market of sin, paid the full price of our redemption in order to set us free. When we put our faith in him, we were united to him in such a way that whatever happened to him, it happened to us. Whatever's true of Jesus positionally is true of us now. Jesus died to sin and for sin on the cross and is now forever alive to God. So too, the moment we came to saving faith in Christ, there was a death in us. Paul calls it the old self or the old man. And there's a resurrection of a new self. That was pictured just a few minutes ago. People going down into the baptismal waters, which meant death. Okay, death literally would have happened physically if they were held down for, you know, a certain amount of time. But they were pulled, they were raised to newness of life. So they went down into the waters of death then were raised up by the power of another into a new life. And so this new life, this new self is awakened to God and aware of God and in relationship with God. You know, I've told you this probably many times before, but I was so astounded when I gave my life to Jesus all those decades ago that this, this God awareness all of a sudden. God, prior to that, I believed he existed, but he was, uh, he was distant. He was somewhere beyond the stars, you know, with a gray beard on a rocking chair somewhere. And, and he was out there, and I just knew, don't screw up, don't screw up too bad, <laughs> you know? And that was sort of the goal of my life. And then I met the Lord, and all of a sudden, I'm aware of God, and I'm aware that he loves me. And I remember going to bed that first night, going, oh, Lord, I hope I still have this feeling when I wake up tomorrow. And I woke up the next day, and oh, Lord, you're still with me. And I went through that day and the Lord stayed with me. Oh, no, that next night, oh Lord, I hope you're here in the morning. I hope you're still here in the morning. Go to sleep, wake up, and the Lord is still with me. Well, it's been 40 years and I woke up this morning and the Lord is still with me. So, so I'm alive to God. And many of you, if not most of you, are alive to God. You were dead 
previously, but at a certain point, you became alive to him. So I remember reading the Bible before I was saved and thinking, this might as well be Chinese. Like, it does not make any sense to me at all. I, I had zero comprehension of what was being, being said. And then after I gave my life to Jesus, my, my eyes were opened and stuff was jumping off of the page of scripture right into my spirit. Like, whoa, like God is speaking to me. And then we'd go to church and, and our pastor would be teaching the word like, oh, he's speaking to me. And I just, it was so incredible. And I began to, as Paul would say in Romans 6, to obey from the inner man. I'm not trying to conform to an external set of rules, but I'm internally changed. I'm alive to God. And now I'm obeying from the heart, from inside. And so when you come to Jesus, you will, you will be born again and you'll begin to think with the mind of Christ and you'll begin to feel with the heart of Christ. You'll begin to see with the eyes of Christ. You'll see that all of a sudden the fields are white unto harvest. You're going to see people in ways you never have before. And Jesus declared that that a key piece in, in us being transformed and changed is the word of God. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the, I would argue the primary sanctifying influence, the, the sanctification means we are changed practically into the image of Jesus and what God has declared us to be spiritually. So, so now my mouth is starting to get under the control of God, and there's not quite as many curse words coming out as there used to be, and not as many, you know, sort of derogatory things or gossipy things, and all of a sudden, my mouth is being sanctified, and God's getting a hold of me. That change is coming from within. It's not coming from without. So, Paul says you're, you're free from sin's tyranny and you're a new person inside. Romans 6, 17 says we were slaves to sin. There was nothing we could do about it. 6, 18 says we're now slaves to righteousness. Now, I, I want you to think about yourself this way because this is powerful. You are a slave to righteousness. The slavery that Paul talks about, it doesn't imply being forced to do something against our will but rather that we're bound to something. So if we are, we're gonna be bound to sin, and if we're not bound to sin, then we are bound to God. Bob Dylan, you're gonna serve somebody, right? So in either case, bound to sin or bound to the Lord, we do what we want. We do what we want. One of my favorite bands is U2. And uh, they have a song called Desire. And in the song, Desire is personified as a woman. 
And so Bono sings, oh, sister, I can't let you go. Desire, desire. Now, if you, if you, if you remember it. So, but it's interesting because he's saying, I can't, of, of desire, I can't let you go. And I want to suggest to us, God doesn't want us to let desire go. He wants our desires to be commandeered by the new nature. And, and so God doesn't call us to become, you know, passionless, emotionless uh, people who insulate and protect ourselves from desire. Rather, he makes us a people who desire and treasure the things that are truly valuable, that are truly worth treasuring, namely Jesus and all things eternal. So the key to our transformation is desire. Where is desire located? Inside of us. Where does the change come from? When you become a Christian, it happens inside of you. Listen, God changes us from the inside out. That's the way it works. No one, this afternoon, nobody's going to have to force me to take my afternoon nap, my Sunday afternoon nap. Ain't going to happen. Her daughter Kelsey's down. She's not going to be going, Dad, you get to bed right now. <laughs> Nobody is going to need to put a gun to my head for me to enjoy that juicy steak. Okay? Because I want to. And that's the point. So God has put desires in you, Christian, that are proper, holy, and good. Now, I know that raises the whole question of the conflicting desire. We can't talk about that this morning. But just know this. Nurture the, your God-given new nature desires. So, let me, let me illustrate this. In the 14th century, there were two brothers uh, who fought for the right to rule over uh, uh, a certain amount of land. And um, this was in Belgium. And the elder brother's name was Reynald. And uh, he was commonly called Crassus because he was in, in a just very much obese, overweight guy. Crassus means fat. So they called him fatso, basically. And, uh, and so after a heated battle, Reynald's younger brother, uh, Edward, led a successful revolt against Crassus and assumed the title of duke over these lands now. He was the leader of the lands. But instead of killing his older brother, his fat older brother, Reynald, he did a very curious thing, and this is a true story, but he built a room around Reynald, or yeah, around Reynald, Crassus. And he built it in such a way that the doors and the windows were open, but the door was not big enough for Crassus to get out. So doors open, windows are open, and there's Reynal. So all he would have to do is leave the room. It's wide open, right? So the obstacle to Reynal's freedom was not the doors or the windows. The obstacle was Reynal himself. So being grossly overweight, couldn't fit through the door. So, so what he needed to do then was diet down to a smaller size and then walk out a free man. And, and however, his younger brother kept on sending delicious food, <laughs> you know, the whole time. And, uh, and some accused 
Edward of being cruel to his, his older brother, but he would just tell them, listen, my brother's not a prisoner. He can leave whenever he wills. But Reynald stayed in that room for 10 years. Reynald was a prisoner, not of his brother. He was a prisoner of his own will. When you come to Jesus, God gives you a new nature and a new will. It doesn't mean there isn't a contrary nature that's in conflict. I can't start down that road. <laughs> okay, we got to keep moving. Uh, but you get the idea. Listen, we're changed from the inside out. That's the idea. But thirdly, revival brings separation. Revival brings separation. Verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Separation. When Pam and I got married, we pledged before God and before our pastor and before our family and before our friends that we were permanently separating from all other humans on planet Earth and giving ourselves to each other exclusively. So, so we separated from all others and we separated to each other. So God's people in Nehemiah's day, they separated themselves from the surrounding peoples and they separated themselves to the Lord and to his word. God's people then would be their people. They would live in community with God's people. They would gather to worship the Lord together. So too, when you become a Christian, you separate yourself from the peoples and you give yourself completely and exclusively to the Lord. So Jesus isn't a part of your life. Jesus is Lord over all of your life, every bit. And so his people then are your people. So whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, that's the reality. So he places us in the church universal and he places us in a church local. That's the way the Lord designed for his people to live. The word church is from the Greek word ecclesia, and it means called out ones. So the very nature of the name church implies that we have been called out from the peoples to be a separate people, unique and distinct. So 2 Corinthians 16, 14, or 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord to his people. So what this means is, among other things, is that when you're looking for someone to marry, the criteria has to be more than she's hot or he's hot. Hell is hot too. 
lot of things that are hot. Well, maybe I'll witness to them and I'll win them to the Lord. Well, maybe, but maybe they'll win you to the world, which is more often the way it goes. The number one priority in choosing a mate has to be that they love Jesus. And not just to, I'm a Christian. Because you, you can tell when there's a lack of reality of, of relationship of the Lord in a person's life. Because they can say, I'm a Christian, and they have a Bible, and, and all the rest. And the difference between that person and somebody who loves the Lord. It comes out in their speech. It comes out in their attitudes and in their actions. So following Jesus, it means being separated from the peoples of the world to him and to his people. So renewal in your life will be evidenced by this separation. You're going to be feeling, okay, this is my team. I get it. This is my team. I'm not like Jesus. Um, I'm not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. We're separated to the Lord. Last one. Revival brings zeal for God's house. Zeal for God's house. So let me try and just drive this, this home as we head to the communion table. God's people, verses 32 through the end of the chapter, it lays out they were to provide for and care for God's house. That's what that section is about. They financed all the ministries of the temple Nehemiah 10.32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the grain offering, the burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. We're taking that on. That's our responsibility as God's people to take care of God's house. So we're going to make sure that all the supplies are paid for, taken care of, so that the people of God are served and that God is honored and glorified at God's house. They took it upon themselves to rotate supplying wood for the altar of sacrifice. Verse 34, we the priests, the Levites, the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it to the house of our God. So there was a rotation and they, you know, cast lots. Oh, it's our, our turn, you know, whatever. They go out and supply the wood. So there was always a fire burning on the altar of sacrifice. It never went out. That's our responsibility for the house of God. We're going to make sure the fire is burning. They gave the first and the best to the house of God. Verse 35, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground, the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. The Lord gets the first, the best. That's the way we signify that the Lord is first in our lives. We gather on Sunday morning. Why? Because Sunday morning is the... First day of the week, God gets the first and the best. The morning hours of the first day of the week, it's God's. It's a first fruits offering to him. We give God the first fruits of our increase because, you know, whatever increase we get, the paycheck, the whatever it is, we give God the first amount because we give him the first and the best. They finance the staff 
of the house of God. Verse 36, and also bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written, the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine, the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, to bring to the Levites tithes from our ground. For it's the Levites who collect the tithes in our towns where we labor. So this is provision for all those who serve in the ministry at the house of God. God's people financed God's house with supplies and furniture and all the ministries and, and uh, all the necessary staff and all of it. God's people financed the ministry. God financed the people. So this is, this is huge. I'm gonna give you two thoughts as we close. The first one is God owns everything, we are stewards. This is, what, this is where biblical giving begins, is with this understanding, God owns everything, we are stewards. You remember when David was told he could not build God's house? So what did David do? He began to accumulate uh, all the materials needed for his son Solomon to be able to build God's house. And so all of the gold and the silver and the wood and all of it, David was accumulating it. He was taking offerings from the people and all the rest. And I'll read it to you from 1 Chronicles 29.10. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor, they come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand, it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. Like David is going, how is, how is this even being recognized as an offering when you gave it to me? You gave us this. And David's, you know, given all the gold and all the, you know, millions of dollars and stuff to the, and how can, how can you even count this as an offering, God, when you gave it to me in the first place? We are strangers before you and sojourners as all of our fathers were, and our days on the earth are like a shadow. There is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house and for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. That's where biblical giving starts. It's not mine. Whatever I have, God gave to me. And it ought to astound us that God receives our giving as though it's coming from us. Like, what? Lastly, giving. Giving is an act, it's an act of worship. Malachi 3.7 says, For the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, you've not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That recalls James, draw near to the Lord, he'll draw near to you. 
But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? And God answers, in tithes and contributions, in your giving or your lack of it. So God tells his people, you've drifted away from me. Um, return to me, I'll return to you. How, Lord, how do we return to you? And God says, give your tithes, your contributions. He doesn't say, you know, go forward at an altar call. Nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But he's saying, he's connecting financial giving with worship. He's connecting it to our relationship with him. The believers sent Paul uh, donations on, on numerous different occasions. He appreciated um, their giving to his ministry. They appreciated Paul and his ministry. But here's what he said in Philippians 4.16. Not that I seek a gift from you guys, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Like, I'm, I'm cheering for you guys. Like, 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 just you're building really a great party for yourselves when you get to heaven. That's essentially what's going on. And I've received full payment and more, and I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. Watch this. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That's worship language. This money that you sent me to supply my ministry and accomplish what the Lord wants to accomplish through me, that is being placed on the spiritual altar and it ascends into the nostrils of God. It's fragrant and beautiful. She sat at the feet of Jesus and in her hands was a jar. You know the story, many of you but it was a jar that was filled with one of the most costly substances known to man at the time. Spikenard ointment was imported from India and the jar that Mary held in her hand, it cost a year's wage. So maybe in the vicinity of 60, 70 grand, something like that, modern term. She opened the jar, began to apply it to the feet of Jesus and then wiped off the excess with her hair and then applied the rest of it to Jesus' head. And Judas was there and he began telling the guys, what a waste, do you see what's going on here? Like she's wasting like 70 grand. And that probably would be her life savings, by the way, was that, that jar. And she, applies it all to Jesus and, and they're criticizing her and they're saying, man, that money could be used to feed the poor. You know, there's so much we could do with all that money. And just then Jesus spoke up and said, you leave her alone. What she's done is a precious and valuable work and the fragrance of her offering is gonna fill the earth. It may seem impractical and irresponsible that you give your hard-earned money to the Lord. And, and people will, maybe your spouse will criticize you. Why would you give all that money to the Lord like that? But in light of who the Lord is, in light of eternity, it's the most practical thing that a person will ever do. I'll tell you what, Mary, 
is glad she did that she spent that 70 grand on Jesus that day. We're still talking about it today. No one else understood, but Mary actually was anointing Jesus for his burial. Nobody knew that but her. Why did she know that? Because she spent time at his feet, that's why. Everybody else is running around having their little arguments or Martha's busy in the kitchen, but she's at Jesus' feet. That's where you often find this Mary. So she hears the plans of the Lord, what's coming. She was misunderstood, she was criticized. Her giving was an act of worship. So too, our giving is to be an act of worship. That's what it is at its very core. We are the people of this house of God, and of course you guys know there's no technical house of God anymore. We the people, we the people are the, the house of God here. But it's our responsibility to take care of the property that God has given to us. I mean, can I commend you this morning for being a faithful church? <laughs> and um, you know, we have seen the bills paid over years and decades through the ups and downs of economies and through COVIDs and this and that. And here we are in the comfort of a beautiful building and able to worship the Lord in a, in a house of God where he is loved and uh, where you are welcomed. So listen, church, are you longing for renewal in your life? Perhaps it's time to present your life to God. Maybe it's time to crawl back up on the altar this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and the lessons that we can receive from people that have gone before us, Lord, our brothers and sisters, from a couple thousand years ago. But you moved back then you move now, always wanting to revive and renew. And, and so, Lord, if anybody's been feeling like, man, I just feel like I'm out of alignment with God, I've, I've been drifting, and I know that, I, I know that the Lord deserves my full surrender, my, my the, the best I can, just giving my life to him. And, and so I want to do that this morning. Listen, if you, if you want to do that, you want to recommit your life, surrender your life, whatever you want to call it, um, I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat and come down here to the front right now. And if you are ready to present your life to God. The people of God in Nehemiah's day, they did it publicly in front of the other people of God and it became an example to them and an encouragement to them. So if that's you, make your way down here to the front and we're going to pray.
on down. Listen, make no mistake, it's you're making a decision. You're, you're choosing. You're going, I'm choosing to present my body, my life to God. And, and God knows you're not, you know, you're not presenting a perfected body. You're not without issues and problems and, and all the rest. He knows that. It's the, it's the act of surrender. It's the act of placing yourself on the altar. That's what the Lord is looking for. Is there anybody else? You're hearing God's call this morning. Just respond and let God bring renewal in your own heart. still a couple coming. Come on and uh, and be a part of this prayer. All right. For all of you who have come and taken this stand, you know, we sang that song, I'll stand. You've taken this stand. God knows your challenges, your struggles, your sins. He knows all of that. And so, what you're doing here is you're presenting yourself to God. You're essentially saying, God, okay, here am I. And now I'm, I'm saying, take this offering and consume me. So, that's all I'm doing. You can't perfect yourself. So you can present yourself. So Lord, right now, I thank you for all these who have come and just with a, their hearts cry saying, man, I wanna, I wanna live for the Lord. And Lord, you know the struggles that they've gone through and the challenges and, and all of the rest. So right now, Lord, as they, uh, spiritually, figuratively speaking, they lay their life, their body on the altar of God. God, would you receive that offering? And then, Lord, would you work in the way that's necessary and needful in each and every one, in the unique ways that they need? So, Holy Spirit, come, bring freedom where there's bondage, bring victory where there's defeat. Lord, bring transformation where there's been uh, just staleness and lack of movement. And so, God, you do the work. And so receive, Lord, our brothers and sisters who present themselves to you, who rededicate themselves to you. God, take that offering and do with it what you will, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you guys.